couple questions to start us off. One, how do we grow? Like grow in our faith. How do we grow spiritually? How do we change? How do the things in our lives change? How do patterns change? How do our mindsets change? How do we change? A lot of people think wrongly about how we change in the Christian tradition. A lot of people have some ideas about how we change that just really aren't true. Some people believe that when you become a Christian, you immediately change and you become a, a totally different person, a totally different human being. Now, Scripture tells us that we become new creations and that there is fundamentally a change that happens in us because we are reunited and reconciled with our Creator God. But that moment, that day of surrender, doesn't necessarily change us completely. Some people think that it just comes with time. That if you just uh, wait long enough, that over time, You'll, you'll become a better person, a better human being. Your character will develop. If, if you go to church enough or you read the Bible enough, you're just going to naturally transform and change. It's just not completely true. I mean, there's some truth to that. I mean, we, obviously, all that stuff's important. Some people think that um, life change and transformation, especially in the West, especially post the enlightenment we we tend to think that just gathering more information and learning more changes us that's just not true you could know the bible cover to cover and still be a jerk some people think the best way to grow is on your own and uh doing uh, Bible study and, and prayer completely on your own, devoid of anybody else in your life. That's not true either. See, we're in a series here where we're looking at this letter from Paul to the Philippians. And we're 10 weeks in. And we got many weeks to go. It's a long haul. We're going we're gonna to chew on this letter for a while. And the reason why we're going to chew on this letter for a while is because it has so much to do with who we are as a community right now. Um, yeah, it, it has a lot to who we were as a community six months ago, two years ago. But it, it has a lot to do with us as a community right now. Us as followers of Jesus in community together. Because our goal as a community is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to start to do the things that Jesus did. And this letter is really important because Paul is writing it from prison. Because Paul has been declaring that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He gets thrown in prison. He is in serious hardship because he can't take care of himself. He doesn't have the money to supply for his own food and clothing. And a huge gift comes from this little house church in Philippi, 800 miles away. And Paul is writing them a thank you letter. And in the midst of writing him a thank you letter, he's trying to encourage them and push them on and, 
and, and, and help them settle some things that are not quite right inside their community. And so for the last number of weeks, we've been talking about relationships. We've been reading this letter, I believe, the way it should be read. And the next two verses, uh, we're only doing two verses today. The next two verses really are um, kind of a can of worms in the Christian tradition. So let's read this uh, together. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have obeyed, not as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, when you pick up the Bible and read this, what's really important is that uh, to remember that we're stepping into a flow of thought that's already happening. So a lot of times what we do is we pick up these verses and we read these two verses and we're like, I need to work on my own salvation. Uh, what does that mean? I don't really understand. Um, and, and, and if you're one of the folks who are listening to this letter being read out loud in the middle of a courtyard, in the middle of a colony of Rome, um, remember, Paul has just said, uh, not uh, a paragraph or two before, he says, whatever happens, whatever may come, live as citizens of the gospel of the king. Remember, that's the, his kind of magnum opus, his, his main thesis for the whole letter. And then this letter goes on after that point. He starts to talk about relationships. He talks, talks, starts to talk about how they um, live in community together and not with selfish ambition or vain conceit. And, and that they should consider, okay, they should consider themselves like in relationship together. And they should look at it like they would look at Christ. And then he does this whole thing we talked about last week, this idea of Jesus emptying himself, pouring himself out, and that that's how we should consider our relationship with each other. And then he gets to this point where he says, and every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And I'm sure their mouths were just like wide open, like just in astonishment. And then, and then this is the part where it picks up. The word therefore is a Greek word, hoste, which means as a result, Okay, so as a result of all of this, as a result of uh, not living in selfish ambition, and this is what Christ has done, as a result of all of that, here is what should happen in your life. Here is what should happen. And he starts off with brothers and sisters. Then this, before we get into the main meat of this, he, he, he starts off with brothers and sisters, and he has this, you know, family relationship, this affection for them. And it's it's a term of endearment, actually. And it's kind of like, hey, my friends, my loved ones. He actually says, I, I know, don't just love you, I like you too. We're family, we're 800 miles apart, uh, but, but I have the affection of Jesus for you. And, and I love you deep in the actual Greek word, deep in my guts, I love you. Uh, that much. And at the end of the letter, he talks about how I long for you. You're my joy and my crown. And, and what's interesting is Paul has 
14 letters to different churches all throughout the New Testament, but only two of them, only two of them does he express um, that they are loved ones. Like, it, you, if you go and read Corinthians or Galatians, these aren't like affectionate letters. He's actually pushing at them and rebuking them and challenging them. And in this book, he's like, you, you, you get it. You understand. And, and here's the reason why. He goes on to say, because you have always obeyed. You remember, this is like at least 10 years later from all that happened in Acts chapter 16. And, and that's the beginning of Philippi as a church, um, a house church in Philippi. Go back and reread that if you, if you missed that part. But it, it, scholars think that it's like 10 years that has gone by. And he's like looking back on his relationship with them. And I'm sure he's popped in and heard news and all that kind of stuff. And he says, you have kept going. You, you are hungry for God. You, you want to know what's next. Um, you want to be transformed. You want to change. You want to obey. And, and he's like, and I love you for it. And then he goes on to say, continue. Um, and he said, that's a present tense tense pro progressive word that means don't stop always continue keep going um, Eugene Peterson talks about obedience and he says this is the idea behind it it's like a long obedience in the same direction just like this long road this long vision of what it looks like to follow Jesus um, it, to the Thess Thessalonians Paul wrote do not get tired of doing good like keep don't get tired of it keep pushing keep going and uh, many times we feel kind of worn down, kind of dry, kind of um, dispassionate. And I just want you, maybe you're in that spot right now. Paul says to keep going. And you're like, how? I don't even know how to keep going. Well, we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. Um, and he says, he just said, okay, continue, um, continue to do good, continue, because um, this, is, um, this is something that just keep going as a church. Um, he, he, he doesn't say, don't just keep going to church and, and keep um, doing, uh, just sitting back and waiting for things to happen. He actually says, put work into it, which is kind of, he mixes it up. He's like, no, put work into this. He's like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the word here is energy. Like, put energy behind it. Put effort into it. Um, and you're probably freaking out right now, some of you going, wait a second. This sounds like, and this is many times in the church history, like this, this is a can of worms. Like, this sounds like what you're saying, Ryan, is you've got to work. You've got to do good things. Um, you got to work at your salvation. Um, Paul is not down on grace at all. And, and, and largely the debate throughout the church is, you know, on this verse is like, hey, is this a verse about earning salvation? Um, and so let's just take a second uh, and talk about the word salvation. The word salvation comes from the Greek word soteria, and it's this idea um, that's much bigger than um, staying out of hell and going to heaven when you die. It's much bigger than that. Um, to Paul, this is a wide, elastic, beautiful word, and it's complex. Okay, so in the New Testament, there's a number of concepts and metaphors 
and pictures that we get about what salvation is. Salvation is adoption into God's family. It's faith or trust or and sometimes translated allegiance. Um, it's forgiveness of sin. It's obedience of faith. It's perseverance. There's this there's notion out there, and you've, you maybe have heard this term of prevenient grace. This is God at work before, God at work in us before we surrender our lives to God. Um, there's reconciliation, redemption, another huge word, uh, regeneration, that's new birth, repentance, heard that before, I'm sure, and then sanctification. And uh, each concept is important, but to simplify, I just want to talk about two of the main buckets of salvation. Bucket number one is reconciliation. This is the idea that we have been reconciled to God, that actually God um, came our way in the relationship and broke down the barrier that separated our uh, enjoyment of God, our relationship with God, that God actually broke that uh, that barrier, and we are now reconciled, that we are fully reconciled to God, that God adopts us into his family with loving arms, and, and that's reconciliation. The other bucket, so reconciliation, the other bucket is something that uh, you've heard before. It's called sanctification, and sanctification is this ongoing work of God through us, in us, and through us to to change our character, to morph our desires, to re-engage us as the people uh, in the image and likeness of God that love the things of God, that, that pursue what God is doing in the world. And, and, and it's the fruit, really, that comes from our reconciliation with God. And so reconciliation and sanctification are parts of the overall conversation about salvation. So salvation is not just ticket to heaven. Salvation is much bigger than that, okay? So what kind of salvation is Paul referring to in this verse? Is it personal salvation? Is it, um, is it this uh, salvation from the, the guilt of sin in our lives? I don't think it is. I don't think that's the context here. Um, I think that sanctification is the conversation. How we are becoming more like Jesus is the conversation here. And, and so what we need to understand is salvation isn't just a, a one moment in history event. Um, it has a past, a present, and a future to it. Okay? So the past... Uh, and one day in your past, and remember, Paul is writing this to followers of Jesus, people who have, who have jumped into the family of God by their, um, by their surrender to Jesus and their announcement in their lives that Jesus is Lord. Okay, so this is, that's who the letter is written to. And that's why we are talking, this as, talking about this as followers of Jesus. So one moment in your past, you met Jesus, you... Uh, came into uh, contact with who Jesus is, his, his love and his forgiveness and his care and his, um, he, you are an object of God's mercy. And um, there was a moment of repentance and baptism and recreation in your life. That, that happened in you, okay? That happened. That was a past event. But 
There is an ongoing work that is happening in you, through you. A present salvation that is going on. You are not done yet. God is not done with you yet. You are a work in progress. I am a work in progress. And then there's a future sense to it. Okay, the future sense of it is that one day, okay, you will be saved. You will be, um, you will be finished. You will be, you will be pulled through this idea of, and we've used this analogy before, that you and I are tethered to something beautiful in the future and that God is pulling us through, okay, and that one day we will arrive. That's the other idea here. So how do we work out this salvation? How do we work it out? Paul says with fear and trembling, with literal fear, phobos, and trembling, tromos, phobos and tromos, working out our relationship with God and what God is trying to do in and through us with fear and trembling. Now, all over scripture, is there a conversation about fear and trembling? Now, I like to jump over this line personally in my own life, reading it. Um, but when we preach through a passage of scripture, you can't really jump over stuff. Fear and trembling, um, the book of Isaiah, the beginning of it, read that. Um, this is Isaiah uh, with, he, he kind of melts down in the face of God and he says, I am, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And then in John, there's this picture of John, Revelation 1, and this, uh, this vision he has, and it talks about how John fell over as if dead. That there's this, this beautiful fear and trembling moment. And I think that, you know, if we're honest, we have a tendency to be really flippant about our theology of God, maybe even a little irreverent. Um, over a hundred times in the Old Testament it says to fear the Lord. 36 commands in the Torah alone to fear God. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean to cower? Uh, no. And, and, and a lot of people like misquote and they think this means reverence. It doesn't mean reverence. Like, here's the crazy thing about how this word phobos is translated. It's translated 100% of the time, no debate on it, as fear. It means fear. It doesn't mean reverence. It means fear. And so what Paul is saying is work out your salvation with fear and awe. Fear and trembling. And the best way I can illustrate this is... A number of weeks ago, uh, Angela, Sydney, and I took a hike with some friends from Crested Butte to Aspen. Long hike, and then we hiked back the next day. One particular point of the hike, you hike over a, a peak, a pass, to go to the other side. And it's a great resting spot, because uh, you have to hike 
like straight up for a, a, white, a while. And so it's a great spot to just sit and drink, drink your water, hydrate, and then enjoy the view. The issue is, is when you're up there, there are some spots that are really precarious. And you, at the same time, two things are happening in you. One, you are afraid that you take the wrong step, you will fall and die, okay? And at the same time, at the exact same time, there's no place you would rather be. It's fear and trembling. And, and what you, can you imagine standing in front of the creator God? And it says in scripture, all throughout scripture, that you and I, one day we'll stand in front of the creator God. And there will be fear and trembling. Meaning there's no place you would rather be, but you're terrified. Now Paul says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that it's actually a big deal, that there's no other place we would rather be and yet we are in awe and majesty of the God who's called us and brought us and adopted us and tethered us to something better. Now, here's the thing. It's not that you, um, I mean, you're already in the, in the terms of salvation reconciled to God. So you don't have to work that out. That's not what we're working out. What we're working out is this idea of Labor, sweat, energy, putting energy towards what the outcome of this reconciliation means. Now, if you missed what the Protestant Reformation is, um, I, would, I would wiki that. Um, fortunately, or really unfortunately, we live in 2020. And 400, three to 400 years have gone by since the Protestant Reformation, actually longer four to 500 years have gone by since the Protestant Reformation. And what the Protestant Reformation was is a protest movement against this idea that we can earn God's you know, salvation, that we can earn God's reconciliation. And so some of you, um, some of us in the church live in a kind of paranoia state about the idea of works that we can't earn our salvation. And so there's this big, there's been a whole lot done to, to, uh, to boundary that off in our lives. Problem here is that Paul does not share the same paranoia. Because remember, salvation covers past, present, and future. Now there's an inter interesting verse out of uh, Ephesians 2, and it goes like this. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this does not uh, this is not from yourselves it is a gift of god not by works so that no one can boast now a lot of times what people do is they stop there they just quote that part and it's one of those tricky places in scripture that if you just quote that part you're actually in error because it goes on to say for we are god's handiwork okay we are god's masterpiece Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You cannot disconnect those two verses, okay? Never quote one without the other. 
And so for Paul, um, good works are just that. They are good. That's it. He doesn't have the baggage of what the church would become one day. He doesn't have that. We do. And so I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. You are people of God. You are the people of God. You are priests, uh, Scripture says. You are part of Abraham's family, which is really a metaphor for being a part of God's family. And you are called to be a blessing. I am called to be a blessing. We've talked about this in the past. We're, we have blessing from God. We don't keep it in a bowl, but our, I, the idea behind this is we are funnels, not bowls. That God's blessing goes through us. We are God's family. We are called to be a blessing and spread God's salvation, his, his joy, his peace, his shalom, all over the world, to every corner of the world. And here's the idea. Okay, here's the idea from Paul. Welcome to the family now get to work. Welcome to the family. Now get to work. Put energy into this. Now, it's not all up to us because look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So the word here, the Greek here is uh, energon. This word work. God who works in you. This word energon. And, and some of you might be thinking, man, that sounds familiar. Do you remember, okay, 1980s Transformers cartoons? Okay, the energon cube. <laughs> and uh, loved it. I got to admit, I loved it. Some of you, I don't know, maybe you didn't hear about that. But energon cubes is how they powered everything. Never mind. Okay. So this idea is there's a divine, creative, spiritual energy at work in you, and he will carry it on. Meaning that the same spirit, and Paul goes on somewhere else in scripture, actually in Romans 8, he says the same spirit that spoke the creation into existence is at work in you. So God's saying, so you put work in. But the Spirit does work too. And it would be really wise for you and I to learn and to practice how to plug into what the Holy Spirit is doing, what the Holy Spirit can do, and, and how the, the Spirit is that source of, of power and energy in us that God works in you, in me. And here's the translations here. There's like five different translations I want to run through real quick. To will and to act is one. To will and to work is another. To help you want and be able to do, okay? That's a, that's a huge phrase. I love that one. To help you to want and to be able to do. See, it's not just about you and I doing good things. It's about God changing the inner orientation of our hearts and minds to actually desire to do those good things, right? To give you the desire and then the last one is creating the desire and the drive, right? So, so to Paul, the Holy Spirit, okay, in us is a divine energy that helps us to become and want to become what God wants us to be. James K.A. Uh, Smith, I've used this quote over and over and over again in the last number of years. Um, his book, You Are What You Love. Listen to this. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, 
Remember we talked earlier about how do we grow? And, and I said, listen, you can learn a lot about Jesus and you can learn a lot about the Bible. That's not the point. He goes on to say, but forms our very love. So Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. That's what this is. And, and this moment, all right, that God's, God wants to do this work in you. He wants you to push in as he's pushing in. And, and this is to fulfill his good purpose. And what is God's good purpose? Well, what's interesting is, as many people have translated this, is to fulfill God's purpose or to fulfill your good pleasure. And there's two different competing ideas with this translation. I actually think it's both. I actually think that God's good purpose is our good pleasure. And so Jesus, okay, when Jesus says, uh, my teachings are the hodas, my teachings are the way, the truth and the life. Uh, this is the road, the hodas is the road. My teachings are the road. It's the road to life. And so here's the plot twist in this whole thing as we wrap up. Remember, we do a really good job in the West, okay, as Westerners. We do a really good job at misreading Scripture. We whip it open, and we read it, and we have a certain perspective based on our time and space, where we are geographically, where we are in history, in our language, in our culture, we misread scripture. One of the main ways we misread scripture is through the lens of individualism. So a lot of times, most of the times, 99% of the time, these verses are preached, are taught as work out your individual, your own little salvation with fear and trembling. The, the teaching is not that. The teaching is not, hey, you individual, you Ben Ewing, you Troy Frodeen, you, you know, Sarah, you, you as an individual, work it out. Work out your little, your little salvation thing uh, by yourself with fear and trembling. That's not what this is. Paul is not talking here about individuals. Hate to break it to you. Paul is talking about becoming like Christ as a church, as a community, as a gathering, as an ecclesia. Look back at the context of Philippians so far. It's all been about we and us, not you personally. It's all been about we. It is written to the church as a body rather than to an individual. Yes, individually we're to conduct ourselves in a way that's appropriate and all that kind of stuff, and I get that. But the emphasis is on the life of the church, the life of the house church in Philippi, um, the life of the community. And they're to put energy, okay, into their community, into the lives together as people of God, as the, the colony of the king. 
that Paul calls them to be a colony, an outpost, um, a, a visual representation of heaven. That they are to heavenize the world as a community. And, and Paul says, I want you to put energy into what um, this salvation work is doing in your midst. So he, he's kind of, I think maybe he's calling them out. He, he, this, he's saying how you're doing life together, how you're relating to each other, some of the squabbles and the, and the difficulty you're going through are actually, I need you to obey. I need you to set aside selfish ambition. I need you to see each other as Christ sees you. I need you to work this out with fear and trembling. Work this out. There's a scholar that writes this. He says, salvation here, and this is in verse 12, is not on personal terms, but in regard to the corporate life of the Philippian church. The readers are being encouraged to concentrate upon reforming their church life, working at, putting energy to, working at this matter until the spiritual health of the community, diseased by strife and bad feeling, is restored. God is after our joy. God is after his good purposes for us as a church and working out the implications of what it looks like to follow Jesus in this moment, in this time, in this season, uh, you and I together, that's the goal. Do you believe that? Like, do you, do you trust that that's what God is saying? God might be asking you to mend a relationship but I don't want to. It's easier just to, I get it. God might be calling you to mend a relationship. Pour yourself out. God might be calling you to ask for help. Because as much as you think you're alone right now, you know, being sequestered and, and all, it's just easier to, to pull away from people. As much as you feel like you're alone right now, God wants you to ask for help. I can't tell you, church, I'm so proud of you. Many of you have come to me and said, hey, I need to do some counseling. I need to do some work. Uh, we as a couple need to do some work. I have referred so many of you to counseling, and I am so proud of you. I am thrilled that you are wanting to press in and do that hard work. You're putting energy towards hard work work and I'm so proud of you. And I'm and if you're hearing this today, if you're sitting in your house church, I you need to know that you can't do this alone. You can't work on your family of origin, your story in your life. You can't work on it alone. You can't work on your marriage alone. You can't work on your 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 pain and and your brokenness and your defeat and your you can't do it alone. God is calling us to work this out together, okay? Now, there's something else that we need to talk about. Obviously, uh, Paul is writing this to the Philippians, certain context going on in their world, all that kind of stuff. And there's something to be said about this for us long-term, okay? Long-term, uh, we want to be a church that is about each other and 
pushing each other and encouraging each other, challenging each other, uh, forgiving each other, reconciling all of that. But I want to speak to this moment right now. I'm actually teaching on Friday, October 2nd. Um, we just witnessed a presidential debate and we have literally one month until an election. And it doesn't seem like it's normal. It doesn't think, seem like things are <laughs> how they should be. Um, and I just want to challenge us and encourage us. Um, you may be being caught up in this election season. Everywhere you turn, there's another headline. Uh, there's another thing to digest politically, social media, whatever. Some of you are getting so stirred up. Um, either way, on the outcome of this election. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard, okay? If this person wins, it's the end. If this person wins, it's the end. There's just rhetoric and fear and anger and frustration and all of it. You and I, as followers of Jesus, as people who announce that Jesus is Lord, Paul wrote in this letter, whatever happens, live as citizens of the gospel of the king. Meaning, whatever happens, live as citizens okay, of the gospel. The gospel is the royal announcement that Jesus is Lord. Guys, our community and who we are, how we are an outpost of the king right now, has everything to do with how we live and how we act and how we talk with people. And God is after our joy. God is after our good, his good purposes in us. And they are one in the same. And so this morning, it might be like, I've, you just got to take a real good look at where your heart is. And is God stirring you to do something you never thought you would do? Maybe you need to reach out. Maybe some of you just like, I just need help right now. Um, and, and back to what I was talking about before, I, I, maybe you just need help. Maybe you just need to process things. Maybe you just need someone to come alongside of you and hear your story. We are a community of the king. We are a colony of the king. And Paul says, welcome to the family. Now get to work. Let me pray. God, thank you for hard words out of these two verses. I pray that we could, um, as a community right now, in our house churches, wherever we're gathered, have some honest conversations. Like, where are we at? Where do we need to work out what God is trying to do in and through us with fear and trembling? God, where do we need to repair things? Where do we need to fix things? Where do we need to encourage each other? 
Where do we need to reach out for people who are, are feeling alone and isolated? Where do we need to um, trust and step out because we have been alone and isolated? God, where can we encourage each other? Where can we reconcile with each other? God, this is the moment for us as a church. This is a moment that uh, we talked about long ago that we want to be more loving more connected to each other, more aware of the needs in our community. This is the moment, Lord, that you want us to lean in, that you want us to work, that you want us to put energy. And we trust that you are putting your energy in, that you have put your spirit in us, the same spirit that, that created this world. You have placed in us not only for ourselves, but for each other. God, work. We pray these things in your name. Amen.